Hello, uh, and welcome to another episode of A Tour Guide Tell All. I am one of your hosts, Rebecca. And I'm Becca. And we are the, the Rebecca. <laughs> that only amuses me, but I'm glad that we do it. Yeah, I know. No, we really <laughs> Every that. now and then. Uh, we are your friendly neighborhood tour guides, and we are here to tell you a little bit of history and a little bit of scandal and some fun. And I think we're just going to keep redoing this tagline until we really settle on one we really like. I think our tagline for this month is definitely, we're here to tell you about some badass women. We're here to tell you about some women who kicked butt and took names and who made this country better for us. And so I'm really excited about the month of August because we're focusing on the fight for women suffrage, the fight for women to get the vote. August is the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which was ratified in August 1920. So big centennial celebration of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. But COVID, among the many things it has ruined, has ruined the chance for us to really gather in the same way. Normally, right now, we'd be doing all kinds of suffrage-related tours and events, and that's just really had to take a back seat. So this is our way with the podcast to really try to honor and commemorate these women and what they did. And so much of what they're fighting for, I think, is we're fighting for is still really relevant today. So every week in August, we'll be highlighting some important women you should know. And hopefully this will inspire you to seek out what's happening virtually to honor the suffrage centennial. Yay. It's really great. We've decided to focus on a few maybe lesser known suffragists, uh, women who should be more famous than they are. We talked about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. We're going to talk about, at some point, Ida B. Wells. And this week, we are talking about uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, sort of an older, first-generation suffragist. She was active at the Seneca Falls Convention and helped to draft the Declaration of Sentiments in the 1840s. Uh, Ida B. Wells, who we're going to talk about later, is going to be more concurrent with the women we're going to talk about today. These are going to be the women who uh, made the final push towards passage of women's suffrage. So today we're going to talk about Lucy Burns and Inez Mulholland. And I, I do want to make the point that we did make in the Elizabeth Cady Stanton episode, but that when we think about suffragists, when we think about these women fighting for the vote, we think of 1900 to 1920. We think about maybe the last 20 years or even just the last 10 years of the rallies and the protests and the picketing. And that was all really, really important. But the fight for women to vote goes back 100 years before that. I mean, really to the founding of this country. But you have women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony that are putting in the work before the Civil War. And you have Quakers and abolitionists and all these groups that are integrating women into what they're doing. So this fight wasn't just one generation. It was multiple generations. And we do see how the fight changes and how the techniques and the tactics change. So uh, if you haven't listened to the Stanton episode, I encourage you to do so to get a little sense of the chronology. But we are going to bring you into kind of that second wave of the fight for suffrage today. And it's taking a long time, and that's worth mentioning. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the Declaration of Sentiments is in 1848. Most of our action today and next week when we talk about Ida B. Wells is going to be from 1900 to 1920. 
But by this time, you're getting a second, even a third generation of women. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's daughter, Harriet Stanton Blatch, will be very important in the actual push to suffrage. So you get the first generation of women who did not live to see it. And now you have a second generation of women who are pushing for it. And they're starting to increasingly worry that they may not live to see women's suffrage. So you've got a, the, at the end, by 1920, this will be a 72-year struggle and generation generations of women uh, are going to be kind of involved in this. So picking this up sort of in the middle of the action with Lucy Burns and Inez Milholland. So I think we'll start with Lucy a little bit because she really, I think, embodies the way the movement is changing. Uh, Lucy Burns is from New York, which is also where we have quite a number of other suffragists from or will live. So a lot of this movement starts on the East Coast and in the New England area. Lucy Burns, like many of the women we highlight in this movement, very smart, very gifted. Uh, she'll attend Packer Collegiate Institute, which was then the Brooklyn Female Academy. Then she goes on to Columbia, Vassar, and Yale. So Ivy League all the way. She's gonna become an English teacher in Brooklyn, but she feels really stymied intellectually. There's not a ton of opportunity for women still at the turn of the century. She doesn't feel particularly challenged. She becomes a teacher because that's one of the only job opportunities out there for women at this time. Her time abroad is going to be huge for her. She's going to be exposed to new ideas. She's going to be exposed to new progressive movements, first in Germany, and then she goes to Oxford and London. And that time in London is going to change her life. She is in London from 1909 to 1912. And this is where the suffrage movement in England is really at its peak. They are a little ahead of the curve in terms of the way that they're tackling the fight for suffrage, particularly Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughters. The Pankhursts are fascinating. Emmeline and her, she's got, I think, five daughters. Not all of them are going to be involved in the movement, but her daughter Christabel is, and they are radicals. Their influence is going to super duper transform the suffrage movement in the U.S. because the Pankhursts and the women who are like them are willing to die for this. In fact, there is a death in England. There's a woman who, in front of the king, puts herself in front of a horse and dies for the cause. So the Pankhursts are really revolutionary and they're going to agitate for decades. Their sort of push is going to really influence a lot of the suffragists in the U.S., particularly because of Lucy Byrne. I love their motto was deeds, not words. Like women in the United States, they had been waiting and waiting and waiting and there had been promises and lip service and, you know, politicians saying they would do things or or people saying they, they understood the cause and they'd had enough. So it really was action oriented. So here's Lucy Burns, a very smart, gifted woman, a woman who's feeling stifled in the United States and frustrated by the lack of progress. And she comes to London and she sees what these women are doing that's so radical. And she's like, I want in. So she starts getting involved. She goes to rallies. She gets involved in demonstrations. And my favorite thing in the world is, of course, she's going to end up arrested, which is the first of many arrests in Lucy Burns' life. And at the London police station, she's hanging out, you know, just under arrest. And a woman next to her notices that she's wearing a USA flat pin. And she asks if Lucy's from America. And Lucy says yes. And this woman introduces herself. And she is Alice Paul. Alice Paul is going to be one of the most important women in American history, period. A woman I think we don't talk about enough, certainly. And I hope someday we'll do a whole podcast just on Alice Paul. But Alice Paul has been in London 
with the same thing, caught up in what Pankhurst is doing, inspired, and she and Lucy Burns become fast friends. They bond over the fact that the American suffrage movement has stagnated, and they vow to bring these British methods back home. They think that if they can take this radical action, that maybe they can spark a change. What I love is they basically become the next generation's version of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. In the last episode, we talked about how Stanton and Anthony really complemented each other. They were sort of two complementary personalities. They did different kind of work, so they worked well together, and they were very opposite. That's Lucy Burns and Alice Paul. Alice Paul is militant. She is a woman who knows what she wants, but she can rub people the wrong way, kind of like Elizabeth Cady Stanton did. Alice Paul is often sometimes the cause before anything else, the cause before anything else. Uh, Lucy Burns is the writer. She's the thinker. She's more diplomatic. She's going to play the long game a little bit, and she'll kind of balance Alice Paul out. But I love their relationship together. I love the work that they accomplished together. Alice Paul said of Lucy Burns, she is always more valiant than I was, about a thousand times more valiant by nature which I think is a pretty good bestie compliment. It is a great bestie compliment. I love the series of partnerships that flows through the women's movement towards suffrage. You know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and then you get to Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, and they're really super tight. They're the yin and the yang of the movement in a lot of important ways. And they acknowledge that they could not have done it alone that one person can't do all of these things. And so you need Lucy Byrne to sort of mellow out Alice Paul in just the right way. Yes, that's a good way to put it, mellow out. But what's great about Lucy Burns too is because she had also been in London, she had seen these things that on their surface, when you say we need to get arrested, we need to spend time in jail, we need to have civil disobedience, we need to be clashing publicly, those might sound really scary, but Lucy had seen that play out in England and she saw how it was working. So she was able to really, in a diplomatic way, get people to understand what Alice Paul was trying to do and to, to promise people, I know this will work, I've seen it work. So these two women come back to America. They're coming back. It's 1913. And they're so excited. And uh, they have all these ideas. And they join the organization that has been the suffrage organization for the last 15 years or so, the National American Women Suffrage Association. This is the group that merged all the suffrage groups from before. And they join and they decide to be members of the Congressional Committee because they think what they're going to do is like lobby congressmen. Their goal is whoever the political party is in power, they need to pass a federal suffrage amendment. So they're not interested in who supported us in the past or who's kind of said nice things about us. It's you're in power now. How are you going to get women the vote? NASA did not like this because they had been very diplomatic and very cautious and very careful. And they didn't want to criticize the Democratic Party of the day because at that point, the Democratic Party was the party that had just won the election. And so they were like, we don't want to criticize the Democrats. We want to work with them. So NASA was really opposed to the idea of ruffling the feathers of Congress, which I don't know how you think you're going to get something done right. without 
upsetting some congressmen. Right, exactly. Lucy Byrne and Alice Paul come back and they want to shake up the existing order in the suffrage movement. And the suffrage movement led by Carrie Chapman Catt at this point is very much go along to get along. And Alice Paul just like puts her fist right through that idea and is like, nope, we got to fight. We have to make ourselves visible. We have to get in their faces. What have you done for us lately? It isn't good enough that you supported us in the past. We need to hold their feet to the fire or we're never going to get the vote. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to look back, I guess, with historical hindsight. But at that point, after so long of a fight, it's hard for me to believe that so many women in the movement were like, oh, no, you know, how else do you expect to get this done? All of their nagging works to their advantage to a point, though, because 1913, NASA agrees to the idea of a suffrage parade. And it's going to time with the inauguration of the new Democratic president, Woodrow Wilson. And so this suffrage parade is going to be a massive deal. And we're going to come back to the parade when we talk about Inez. But this is really a win for Burns and Paul. I don't think this parade would have happened if the two of them hadn't been pushing NASA at every turn. Because NASA had been doing little speeches. They had been doing letter writing campaigns. They'd been doing very quiet organizing. They had not been doing a big, massive public show. So this suffrage parade is going to be huge. Now, even with the suffrage parade, the Burns and Paul duo just continue to be a problem. They continue in particular to pick on Woodrow Wilson, who frankly deserves it. And they needle at him so much that they basically get forced out of NASA. They try to get NASA to work with them. They try, they don't want to splinter the movement. They understood historically that that wasn't going to help, but they cannot deal with Woodrow Wilson any longer. And so they break off and they form a group called the Congressional Union. And this is really the group that keeps the 19th Amendment alive. They're going to keep this amendment, which at the time is the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, afloat. They're going to actually get it out of committee in 1914 for the first time ever. And Lucy Burns is the first woman to speak before the congressional delegates about the 19th Amendment. And this is exactly where Burns' strong suit is. She's an excellent writer. She's an excellent speaker. She organizes all her research. And then they understand politics. They understand that we can't just have an operation in D.C. We need grassroots state by state by state. And we need these grassroots to not just be working on getting the vote in their state, as several Western states had done. We need our grassroots operation nationwide to be all in on the federal suffrage amendment. That's really the laser focus. And I love that these two women really try with NASA. They tried so hard because in 1915, they're like, okay, let's put it all aside. Let's go to the Willard Hotel in Washington, DC. All good meetings happen at the Willard. And they're like, let's rejoin together. Let's, if you'll just let us do our thing, we could have this powerful movement. And NASA's like, no, no, that's just not for us. We're not ready. We're not there. And so Alice Paul and Lucy Burns will found the National Women's Party 1916, the NWP. The National Women's Party is going to be organized in Chicago with the goal, the number one goal of passing a federal woman's suffrage amendment. And what they really want to do as part of that is show the political power of a women's political party. They want to show that they can do this the way other lobbying groups do it, that they can demonstrate that they can do what the labor movement's been doing, that they can do what other progressive groups have been doing and have real political power. And they do this by doing what they were doing in England. They get more aggressive. 
They're protesting constantly. They're engaging with the police. They are going to get themselves arrested. And it is intense. Not only is it intense, it works. It gets headlines, which is what they want. If you have ever seen protests around the White House for women's suffrage, this is going to be right around that time. We're not in World War I yet, but it is happening. And so you're borrowing a lot of language about the war. This is where you're going to see uh, the signs that say Kaiser Wilson, how long must women wait for liberty? So you're protesting in front of the White House, which is this huge visual. It's why there are all these pictures taken of it. And they're getting arrested, which is very public. And then when they get arrested, they're being taken to Occoquan Workhouse, which is Occoquan is what, 45 minutes south of Washington? I mean, with traffic, it's honestly only about, you know, 20 miles or so, 25 miles. It's not so far, but it's outside of Washington, D.C., far from the, you know, they're trying to get them away from the press, trying to get them away from the spotlight. And yeah, these women are imprisoned in terrible conditions. Terrible conditions, and then they will go, they will borrow something else from the Pankhursts in England, which is they will go on a hunger strike, which means they don't eat at all for days. And this goes on and on. And eventually, and this is one of the things that's going to really galvanize public support towards the women's movement, an order comes down that these women need to be force fed. They don't want dead women on their hands. You know, it's bad enough that they've had to imprison these women because that's not great press for the state, as it were. It's not great press for the government. But if these women die in prison from these hunger strikes, that would be bad. So they decide the best way to deal with this is the force feeding, which is a gruesome you know, horrific experience. Yes, it's terrible. And if you want more information on how force feeding works, feel free to tweet at us. We're not going to go into it because, you know, this is family friendly, but it's gruesome. It's terrible. It happens multiple times. And when these women get out, they talk to the press about it. They talk about how cruel it was. They talk about how against their will, they were trying this peaceful, this protest in prison, how they've been arrested for civil disobedience. And it makes a lot of headlines understandably, this treatment sort of forces Lucy Burns and Alice Paul to align themselves with the rights of political prisoners. So they're going to talk about how prison conditions are affecting them and how it's affecting the movement. And they're going to get involved for better prison conditions as well. Lucy Burns actually writes one of the first documents in the United States that really outlines the rights of political prisoners as dictated by our laws and customs. And Lucy Burns is really an organizer in the prisons. She is the light for other women. Women follow her lead. She will, out of all the women who get arrested from the National Women's Party, which is numerous, and many of these women are arrested multiple times, Lucy Burns spends more time in jail than any of the other leaders or protesters in this movement. She's constantly there. She's constantly documenting the experience. And then when she comes out, she's writing, 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 talking to the press and making sure that people know what's happening. And I do wanna mention a particular experience, and I think it's the one that we most hear about when we hear about Occupy Workhouse, and that's the Night of Terror. Lucy Burns, the third time she's arrested, the judge decides they're going to make an example of her and they're gonna give her the maximum sentence. They're gonna put her, she was arrested, by the way, for obstruction of traffic, 
I just want to get into that, like for a quick second, when you see these silent sentinels, these women standing outside the White House, this is when Pennsylvania Avenue was still open to vehicular traffic. Of course, in this era, you still have carriages and horses, as well as motorized vehicles. So it's chaotic. But these women were peaceful. They were standing with signs. They weren't engaging. They weren't uh, trying to fight with the police. And they had to figure out how to arrest these people who were peacefully exercising those First Amendment rights. So they went with the old obstruction of traffic. And that's what gets these women thrown in jail. It's kind of like when they arrested Al Capone for tax evasion. (laughs) Like really not at all the crimes that he really was was guilty of. These women aren't, they're guilty of nothing. They're protesting peacefully, which is our First Amendment right. And they get arrested on these trumped up charges of traffic violations. So here she is, her obstruction of traffic. It's her third time and they make an example of her. And they are going to throw her into the workhouse for as long as they can. And they try to intimidate her because she is the ringleader every time she's in jail. And she is incredible. Women are being beaten. They're being choked. They're being pinched and prodded. They're being thrown against iron benches and up against walls. One woman was knocked out so completely that her cellmate thought she was dead and suffered a heart attack at the shock of seeing what this woman went through. Lucy, to keep everyone's spirits up, calls roll call constantly. So check in. What's your name? Where are you from? What are you here for? Over and over and over. Even though her own life is threatened, she continues to do this. There's a lot of physical abuse to these women. To punish Lucy, they decide to handcuff her with her hands above her head all night long. Try to do that for like 10 minutes and see how you feel all night long. And in solidarity, all the other women who had the strength to hold their arms up did so that Lucy knew she wasn't doing that alone. And on the third day of this particular sentencing after this night of terror, this is where they start force feeding. And it took five people to hold Lucy down and force feed her, which just shows an incredible amount of strength on her part. She refuses to open her mouth and they can't get her mouth open. So she is force fed through her nostrils. And I mention that as graphic as it is because she suffers nosebleeds for the rest of her life because of this experience. This is traumatic stuff, and this is going to be the turning point. Wilson will have political reasons to sort of turn the corner on the 19th Amendment as well, but this press, this publicity, does exactly what these women intended. It changes public opinion, it galvanizes public opinion, and it certainly gets uh, the wheels in Washington moving to get Wilson on board. Now, of course, Lucy is going to be excited when the 19th Amendment passes Congress. She will be involved with the National Women's Party state-by-state effort for ratification. But when this is over, when the 19th Amendment is ratified, Lucy is done. She really doesn't get involved or stay involved, I should say, with the National Women's Party or any of the work the party does after the 19th Amendment because she sort of feels like she's given. She's given 15 years of her life to this experience, uh, she sacrificed physically, mentally, emotionally, and she's sort of done. She says, I don't want to do anything anymore. I think we have done all this for women, and we have sacrificed everything we possess for them, and now let them fight for it now. I am not going to fight anymore. And so I have to respect that, that she achieves this goal and then says, okay, 
pass the banner on, pass the torch, let the next generation of women fight for the next step. Alice, of course, is going to get to work on the Equal Rights Amendment almost immediately after the 19th Amendment, and Alice will keep working. But Lucy just retires from public life, and she sort of lives sort of a quiet uh, life until she dies in 1966, which also, you know, we continue to think, I think, that all these things happened so long ago, but we had suffragists still alive in the 1960s and 70s, which is not a generation all that far removed from us, really. So when, when we think about this, we're thinking about our grandparents or great-grandparents, not so far removed. It's 100% true. And you can't really fault Lucy Burns for retiring, really. She did what she wanted to do and then was had had enough of public life. And, you know, you sacrificed that much for the movement. Not everybody can sustain that level of radicalism for the rest of their life, like Alice Paul, who continues to advocate for the ERA until she dies in the 1970s, which is insane. We're going to pivot here and talk about Inez Milholland. I should say Burns and Paul set the stage for what the movement is doing. And I think Inez is such a great connection because she becomes the image of the movement. You have all this energy and organization and action happening. And so just to draw that connection there, as we come to Inez, she will interestingly enough, become the face of this generation. I'm glad you mentioned that in a visual context, Becca, because that's exactly where I want to start with Inez. I know that podcasting is an audio medium, like where you're listening to us. Hopefully. But hopefully, yeah. Uh, you're probably on your phones or near a computer or whatever. Do a Google search for Inez and look for images of her. You're going to come up with a couple of different types of images for Inez Milholland. You'll see several portraits of her. She is posed. It's clearly a studio portrait. She's wearing nice clothing. Her hair is done. She looks very lovely. Uh, you'll see a few of those. And you'll also see a few pictures of her on horseback. Now, these are all going to be black and white. Color photography did not exist yet. There's a few pictures of her on horseback. She does this stunt with the horse several times, but in particular, you're going to see one of her. It looks like she's all in white. It actually, she's in light blue, but that doesn't come through in a black and white picture. She's got a cape on. Her hair is flowing down her back. The cape goes over not only all of her, but over the backside of the horse as well. She looks very angelic. That is going to be from the 1913 Women's March, which we're going to get to in a second. And the reason I want to start with a visual image of Inez is that's why she's important. Inez Milholland, in 1913, she's going to be 27 years old, and she's very beautiful, conventionally sort of attractive, particularly given the beauty standards of the day. Edwardian idea of feminine beauty is very angelic, passive, and kind of very petite and lovely, and she is all of those things. She's very pretty. She does not look like a rabble rouser. She doesn't look like a radical. She looks like like the daughter you want to have, the woman you want to marry, the mother you want in your home. She has all of that look, you know, fortunately for her. She looks like she should be at Newport hanging out with the Vanderbilts 
right? And she was very wealthy. She comes from her father was very rich. She grows up with everything. She spends part of her growing up years in London and part of them in New York City. And she comes from a lot of privilege, but she also comes from a very socially progressive background. Her father is very much a progressive and he sort of instills that in his two daughters. Inez is going to go to Vassar. So just like Lucy Byrne, they were not quite contemporaries, but they were close. And at Vassar, she's going to start a women's suffrage group, which is roundly criticized by the Vassar administration. They think women should get an education, but are not super sure that women should vote, which is insanely contradictory, but we'll move past it. Inez decides that she's not going to let them tell her no. She takes her women's suffrage groups and they start meeting off campus. Since they're not allowed on campus, they meet in a couple of different places. And for a while, believe it or not, she and these 40 Vassar students all are going to meet at a cemetery, uh, a local cemetery in Ithaca, New York, which just is super committed and super awesome. She applies to both Harvard and Yale Law School. She doesn't get in because she's a girl. So she goes to NYU. She gets a law degree and becomes a lawyer. Uh, She gets a job with a firm in New York, and she has a variety of causes. She's interested in prison reform and child labor. She's very interested in organized labor, a big friend of the labor movement, and she's interested in women's suffrage as well. And she doesn't look at, like we mentioned in her pictures, she doesn't look like a radical, but she really is. She really is. I mean, she's she's a member of the NAACP. She's a member of these peace organizations, world peace organizations. She's a member of all these labor groups and organizations, which were radical at the time. So although she has that look, like you said, of this blue-blooded, upper, upper echelon society woman, she's actually really kind of down in the dirt in terms of getting onto the ground level and being politically active and engaged. And the fact that she you know, she has money. She doesn't have to be a lawyer, but she doesn't need to be a lawyer for the money, but she's so adamant about pursuing the law so that she can fight for the causes she believes in. And, you know, I think there's a little bit of the, I'm just going to keep applying until one of these stupid sexist law schools accepts me. But she knows that if she's a lawyer, she can actually make change. And I I just admire that about her, her willingness to really be active. She could have just funded these groups with money and still have been doing a good thing, but she really wants to be on the ground and engaged. Yes. And she starts to appreciate how valuable she is to the movement in a sort of different way. She attends her first suffrage parade in 1911, and she holds a sign that is a a quote from Emmeline Pankhurst that reads, forward out of error, leave behind the night, forward through the darkness, forward into light. And that becomes her slogan. So forward into light becomes her banner, her slogan. And she quickly becomes the face of the suffrage movement. First of all, she's beautiful. She does this bit where she leads these suffrage parades. She's on a horse, so she's elevated. She's beautiful. And so she's going to lead these parades. And her looks are important to her appeal to the movement. Then, like now, the charge against feminists is that they're ugly and that they can't catch a man. And so obviously they're doing this rabble-rousing and this sort of protesting because they've got nothing else. And Inez is obviously beautiful, and she's got several boyfriends. She's an advocate of free love. And she doesn't need the money. 
socially prominent. She's very good looking, but yet she's still in the dirt, in the muck, doing the organizing. Uh, and because of that, she sort of answers these charges that, you know, all of these suffragists are kind of ugly. Inez is able to say, no, we're not. We believe in equality. And so she becomes the sort of really face of this movement, allowing a lot of women to sort of buy into the idea that not all of these feminists are dissatisfied, grumpy, older women. She presents the sort of younger face. There's a quote from Inez that I love. I am prepared to sacrifice every so-called privilege I possess in order to have a few rights. Yes. And, and I love that, this idea that you know, even if you are privileged by your class, by your socioeconomic status, by beauty, by whatever, privilege does not, at the end of the day, replace rights under the law. And, and I love that fight. And I love, you make such an excellent point, I think, about why her looks and beauty are so important. But I also think, even beyond that too, she almost looks otherworldly. And as to a certain extent, she looks like something out of Greek or Roman art. She looks like something out of, out of a Renaissance painting. And so when people see photographs of her or they see, you know, these paintings and things that use her image, it looks like a higher cause now. It looks like, you know, especially with her on the white horse, like God himself has handed down this messenger, this angelic figure. And so she's used in such a way where now she represents this cause that's so significant and she elevates, I think, what it means to be involved in the suffrage movement because of the visual she presents. Yes, exactly. And they refine this over time. So this use of her, and she knows that that's what she's being used for. She's fine with it. Um, she knows that she is presenting this visual to the crowds of beauty and of sort of moral fortitude and, you know, allowing people to see that this is a righteous cause since this is kind of a religious image. She also is going to be referred to as the Joan of Arc of the movement. She's on horseback. She's very pretty. She's leading the charge literally for women's suffrage. Her most famous horseback riding event uh, is going to be also known as the 1913 Suffrage Parade. We've alluded to this already, and Inez is a good way into talking about it because she literally is the way into the Suffrage Parade. Inez Milholland is going to be the literal leader of this parade. And the parade is the idea is Alice Paul's. And Lucy Burns. Sorry. And Lucy Burns, yes, sorry. And they want to have this parade down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., the day before Woodrow Wilson is inaugurated president. Woodrow Wilson is not a fan of suffrage or women or decency generally. And in those days, presidents were inaugurated on March 4th not January 20th like we do today. So Woodrow Wilson is supposed to arrive the day before, that's traditional, and the idea is he's going to be greeted in Washington by this massive parade of thousands of women parading down Pennsylvania Avenue. And may I just say, in 1913, there had been no large-scale organized political protest or march in D.C. Today, I mean, you live here, you know. 
marches, protests, rallies, political gatherings, they happen all the time. You know, gathering thousands of people together in DC for a political purpose in 2020 doesn't seem like, well, maybe not in 2020 in large groups, but in the 21st century, it's not that big of a deal. But in 1913, this is crazy. It's never been done before by men, let alone by women. And so Wilson is going to be kind of walking into this massive shocking endeavor. So just the fact that this is happening is freaking people out. And then the spectacle that they're planning is a whole next level. Months of planning go into this. They start planning this almost the minute that Wilson is elected in the fall of 1912. And they plan this. Alice Paul does very little else for months. And the plan is they're going to have thousands of women. There are estimates to this day as to how many. Usually the estimate of about eight to 9,000 is probably accurate. And they're in... It's an entire tableau. So I mentioned earlier, forward into light. That's sort of Inez Milholland's motto, and that becomes the motto of the parade. And so the different delegations are going to be color-coded so that you're moving from darkness into light in a visual manner, walking down Pennsylvania Avenue. And you have delegations by state. Alice Paul gets delegates from other countries that already have given women the vote. So they march together. Occupations, I love that they get the women together by the jobs they do. So you have like teachers groups and lawyers groups and 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 women in the home, honoring homemakers and, and these women who need to also have the vote. Yes. Alice Paul directs the, to add to the drama of the march women. There are 26 floats, six golden chariots, 10 bands, 45 captains, 200 marshals, 120 pages, six mounted heralds, and six mounted brigades. So imagine thousands of women processing down in there and color-coded. So you've got this enormously powerful visual and it's all led. It starts at the Capitol and heads down towards the White House. They have a, a stage set up right near the White House where the, near the Treasury Building today. And they have allegorical tableau going on. And this is all going to be led by Inez Milholland. She kicks this whole thing off. And in the photographs, it looks like she's wearing white. It actually was light blue, but that doesn't really come through. They knew, though, that she would appear in the newspapers looking angelic, looking like she's got a white cape on, and she's sort of leading this procession as the face of this movement. She gives a speech at the end of the parade near the White House, so this is going to be a really big deal. And in fact, it works so well that Wilson is taking the train to Washington, D.C., President-elect Woodrow Wilson. He gets off the train, and he's like, where is everybody? There's no one there to greet him, because there, everybody in Washington is at this parade. So it's a huge triumph. And it sets says a message to Wilson like hi we're here we want the vote and that's how that's going to go and we're not going to let up until you give us what we want and to I think try to imagine how the size of the crowds and the interest some people coming of course out of curiosity some coming to gawk people coming to support you have these crowds and crowds of people and the police department had fought them at every turn on security and organization so they have you know Inez on horseback in the front and she's literally using her horse to part the seas of people because the avenue the further down they get had been completely blocked by crowds so here she is truly 
marshalling through these throngs of primarily male spectators, kind of leading the women forward. It's such an incredible, like if there was ever a time I wish we could have had drone footage, there is some film footage of the march, but really I would love to see like a minute by minute live action. I'd love to see the color of it. Yeah, exactly. Because the you can get the sense of the crowd from photographs, but the colors don't come through because it's all black and white. And so I'd love to be able to see the visual that they were creating walking down Pennsylvania Avenue. It must have been insanely powerful. Inez Milholland will continue to be devoted to the movement. Deeply she, devoted. Deeply devoted. She gets married later that year to a Frenchman named, and I'm going to butcher this. <laughs> My French is no better. Yeah, right. Uh, Eugène Bossavine, about 50% chance I pronounced that right. She tells him that she doesn't really plan on stopping seeing other people. Like she's an advocate of free love, so he can hang out for a while, but they have a, a new arrangement. She's very much a, what they were calling a new woman. And she goes to speak in 1916 to a bunch of Western states. And in those days, the Western states had given women the vote. Montana, Wyoming, a bunch of those states come into the union with women's suffrage. And so her idea is that you need to speak to the areas where women already have the vote. Wilson is running for re-election in the fall of 1916. He does not support universal women's suffrage. So she is going to urge women who have the vote to vote against Wilson as a protest. While she is on the speaking tour, she has been ill. She has something called pernicious anemia, which really sounds bad. It's a blood disorder. She collapses in Los Angeles and dies in the hospital there about a month later in late November of 1916. So she dies at 30 years old, right at the height of her beauty and her fame. And she becomes almost instantly a martyr to the cause, which is probably exactly what she would have wanted. Um, she didn't want to be dead, obviously, but- But if you have to, at least you, be a martyr for the cause. Yes, and Alice Paul and Lucy Burns are very effective at using her martyrdom. I mean, she literally gave her life for the cause. Her doctors try to tell her to slow down for her health, and she ignores them and continues to push for women's suffrage. And so she's so committed that she literally dies for the cause. And this is going to be hugely effective. Alice Paul and Lucy Burns are going to use this. They're going to use her beauty, her presence, and now she's going to be a martyr to women's suffrage. So she is almost as effective as a murder uh, as she was with her sharp tongue while she was alive. They produce pamphlets and material that feature her. They'll kind of enshrine her Inez Mulholland Boisman, I can't do the French thing either, who died for the freedom of women. So they use this image of her on the horse constantly. Uh, her last public words, the Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty is going to go everywhere. Burns and Paul are going to make sure that it's used on banners over and over and over again. Because how poignant is that? A 30-year-old woman, how long must women wait for liberty? And here it is, you know, still, still no 19th Amendment. And so they realize the poetry of that, the beauty of that. And so they use it. And, and that's one of my favorite banners from the National Women's Party collection in general is that Mr. Wilson and that that comes from her. And they were so wise to use it, to utilize it. Absolutely. Very, it's a brilliant 
addition to what they're already trying to do. And the tactics, as we're going to talk about a little bit later, work pretty quickly. It's no accident that they start ramping up these tactics in 1913 and women get the right to vote just seven years later. So Lucy Byrne, Inez Milholland, and Alice Paul are going to really shove the women's movement much closer to success and women getting the vote much faster than I think otherwise they would have. I want to mention, and this ties into one of our many episodes just a couple weeks back, but uh, her husband remarries another famous woman. Okay. I was going to mention that too. That's good. (laughs) Who does does he marry? So Bossavane, that's what we're going to call him. (laughs) He remarries Edna St. Vincent Millay, the author. So he seems to really like the forward thinking, like super awesome women, which makes him actually very awesome as well. She's an author and a poet, and she will be invited to attend a memorial for Mulholland at the Portrait Monument to Suffrage Pioneers. So we did a a little mini episode a couple weeks back on this Portrait Monument. It's at the U.S. Capitol today in the Rotunda. It features Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, Susan B. Anthony, and celebrates the women who fought for suffrage and the 19th Amendment. So Malay, when she was invited to honor Mulholland at this event, because many of the other women from the National Women's Party were still alive when this portrait monument was dedicated in 1923, but Milholland wasn't. So Malay wrote a sonnet. I am no poetry expert, but I will share it with you because I love it so much. To Inez Milholland, upon this marble bust that is not I, lay the round formal wreath that is not fame. But in the forum of my silence cry, root ye the living tree whose sap is flame. I that was proud and valiant valiant am no more, save as a wind that rattles the stout door. Troubling the ashes in the sheltered grate, the stone will perish, I shall be twice dust. Only my standard on a taken hill can cheat the mildew and the red-brown rust and make immortal my adventurous will. Even now the silk is tugging at the staff, take up the song, forget the epitaph. So what she's saying is follow Inez's example be valiant, be adventurous, make trouble, right? Make good trouble. It's hard not to think of that as we've just honored John Lewis so recently, but she is telling people to not just, she wasn't just a martyr for the cause, take inspiration from her life. And even though she is weirdly not as remembered today, she was such a significant part of the movement. She's not featured in a lot of the places that we see suffrage remembrance. And I hope that's changing and will change more as uh, the centennial comes and goes and, and we start recognizing this more. Yes. She does have a mountain named after her though. That's pretty cool. It is pretty I cool. I would like a mountain. I would like a mountain. It's in Lewis, New York, which is upstate. Apparently she used to vacation there and they decided recently, like in the last six or seven years, to rename it Mount Inez. So Lewis, New York, Mount Inez. Oh. Yeah. That's pretty nice. Now, as always, we like to talk a little bit about where you can see some of this in DC. But before I do that, I will mention, you know, me and my movies and my pop culture. I think if you want to get at least a good historical fiction version of what the National Women's Party does and how they work and this suffrage parade in particular, I recommend Iron Jawed Angels. If you haven't seen it, it's fantastic. It came out, gosh, 15, 16 years ago now. Just hard to believe Julia Ormond plays Inez Mulholland. So that gives you an idea of how pretty she was. You got to have this really beautiful woman portray her. But I think it does get at at least 
you know, there's obvious artistic license taken, but I think it really gets at the radicalization of the movement and how hard these women fought. So there's no better time than the hundredth anniversary, I think, to pop in pop in nobody pops in a tape anymore uh to stream iron jod angels it's so good though i remember when it came out i watched it with friends i attended a woman's college when it came out so we definitely watched it many times you did yes francis o'connor plays lucy burns it's so good i will rewatch it sometime soon and you can follow us and i'll live tweet it yes oh we should do that that would be fun So um, as we mentioned in a lot of these episodes, when we're talking about the National Women's Party, you can visit where the National Women's Party worked here in Washington, D.C. Their headquarters was located on Capitol Hill, although they moved to the Capitol Hill location after the 19th Amendment happens. But today, the Belmont Paul National Women's Equality Monument, that was the headquarters of the National Women's Party. And inside, they have the banners the banners these women carried. They have the drawings of Inez Mulholland. They have the political cartoons that often featured Inez in them. They have busts of these leaders. They have a lot of great information about Alice Paul, in particular, who lived in that house until she died in the 1970s. Lucy Burns, Inez, a lot of the women we talked about. Obviously, for COVID, it's still closed, but I really encourage you, if you've not visited this gem in DC, I absolutely, I say this every time, but you really should go visit because there's so much really primary source history there. What these women carried, what they wrote, what they did. Yes. The Belmont Paul House, the National Equality Monument is very excellent. Very excellent and well worth checking out. Highly recommend. There's a museum in Lorton, which is south of Washington, D.C., about Lucy Burns. Yes. So there's a Lucy Burns Museum as part of the Workhouse Arts Center. It's basically the old Aquaquan Workhouse. Part of it has been transformed into a museum uh, named for Lucy Burns because she spent the most time there. But it tells the story of all these women who were really risking their lives to fight for freedom and fight for women's rights and for the 19th Amendment. Uh, So I definitely recommend that if people are willing to take a little bit of a trip out of town, a little bit to visit. Not too far from there is also going to be a new suffragist memorial. It was supposed to be dedicated this year, but like so many things, it has been pushed back. It's called the Turning Point Memorial. We'll link to it in the show notes just so you can have a little bit of information. It will feature Alice Paul, Carrie Chapman Catt, and Mary Church Terrell are the three figures who will get statues, but as a general sense, it will honor all the women who fought for suffrage. So um, if you do go out to Lucy Burns Museum, hopefully by the time you go out there, this memorial will be dedicated as well. And as always, we encourage you to look at our show notes, especially now. We're going to be posting and sharing with a lot of cool virtual stuff that's happening for the suffrage centennial. So um, be sure to check out our show notes online. We'll link to things, especially as we hear about them. Yes. And feel free to check us out on the Twitters at Tour Guide Tell. We are on the Facebook and the Instagrams at Free Tours by Foot HQ. And you can email us at tourguidetellall at gmail.com if you have suggestions or topic suggestions or want to interact with us. We are doing a whole month about the fight for women's suffrage. So next week we will be back with an episode about Ida B. Wells. Uh, We want to talk about the women of color uh, and their experience with the fight for suffrage as well. And Ida is a boss. I'll probably, I mean, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but I will talk a little bit about Mary Church Terrell as well, certainly. But we'll talk a little bit about that. And then to just build it up, we're building 
up to the actual centennial, the ratifications. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty of how this happened and how it frankly almost didn't happen, how we almost lost the 19th Amendment. So I encourage you to keep tuning in, keep following us. Thank you, thank you, thank you to our patrons who make this possible. We love our patrons. We'll have some extra women's history stuff for you coming up as patron-only extras. And we just are so thankful to all our listeners. So please email, tweet us, let us know what you think. We're getting excited for this month. We're excited to be talking about women. So thank you guys so much, and we'll, we'll see you next time. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Tour Guide Tell All is brought to you by some of the fine guides at DC by foot, one of the many cities covered by free tours by foot. And as we start to reopen cities, we are giving private tours. Please check us out at freetoursbyfoot.com. Tour Guide Tell All is Rebecca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Candon Arseniega, and me, Dan King.